Hey, what's up? Um, I always wonder whether I sound like I'm asleep. Maybe I do. That's okay. Um, uh, yeah, how are you going? I, I hope you're well. Um, I'm doing this thing now where I'm going to try and release an episode every Sunday. Melbourne time. So that'll be like Saturday night, London time. Um, so yeah, this is me trying to, trying to do that. Um, yeah, I hope, I hope you've been well. Um, hope your week's been nice. I wonder what you've been up to. Maybe, maybe some cool things. Um, I'm going to share a quick, quick, uh, story of something notable that happened to me during my week. So I ride to uni, um, along the canal and the canal kind of takes me into central London. The ride's about half an hour. It's a nice ride. Uh, it's pretty scary. Uh, you have to kind of go under these bridges and, um, I guess the water's right there and there's no kind of, um, like barriers or anything preventing you from, uh, falling in. And when you go under the bridge, you kind of have to, uh, go around this blind turn. Always you kind of turn a corner and you can't see around the other side. And you also have to duck because the bridge kind of cuts really low. Um, and yeah, I, I think I'm going to fall in every time, like every, every single time. And so I guess there are about five or six bridges that I have to go under. And so, um, let's say five bridges each way, 10 bridges a day. I go to uni three days a week, uh, 30 bridges, 30 moments of like fear of like crippling fear. Um, anyway, that, that's not actually the story. Uh, the story is it does involve me cycling to uni, but it doesn't involve bridges. Um, what does it involve? So one day, two days ago, what day is it today? It's Friday. Um, on Wednesday, I was riding to uni and there were these, there was this, um, this group of cyclist people in front of me and, oh God, I keep hitting the microphone. Sorry. Um, yeah, there was this group of cyclist people in front of me and they were riding really quickly. And you know, like all those cyclist people who are really angry they're really angry about everything. So they ring their bell super fucking loud and they, they make you feel like you don't deserve to be there. You don't deserve to be like walking that you're not allowed to walk because they're, they're the only ones allowed to dominate the road. Like they have to dominate the road and you just have to kind of get off the road anyway. So there were those people and they were clearing the way really aggressively. And so people that ring their bell, that yell like, ah, um, you know, they like spit, they blow, they do that like nose blow thing. What, what the fuck? So they, yeah, they, they were doing all of that. And I was just kind of, I like, I try and really push myself on the way to uni. So I was riding hard. So I was like kind of keeping up with these guys. Um, and I say guys, because it was it, like, it was like a group of like very, very, very macho men with like humongous calves and like bolt like they were bowling and like they were yelling and like you know at least you know i assumed that they were men maybe maybe not um anyway uh and and then um i saw this guy in the distance with a big trench coat and a dog and there are lots of people who walk their dogs along the canal and some people have the dogs on a leash and some people don't and sometimes the dogs are a bit careless and they kind of go wandering and you have to like fully stop your bike because you don't want to hit the dog maybe you do want to hit the dog but you probably shouldn't want to hit the dog I, I don't want to, I mean, like, I, I don't, I don't want to hit a dog. Um, so there was this guy and his dog, but his dog was on a leash. And so it was okay. And so the cyclists all kind of flew past this guy and, and he didn't really respond. He was just like, 
as in like he just kind of looked up acknowledged that there were cyclists roaring by angry like vicious humongous calf muscle men cyclists going past um and then uh and then there was then there was, it was my turn to go past this guy and like i wasn't on like a, a touring bike i'm on like a you know like one of those dutch bikes that kind of make you sit up really straight and they feel like you're riding on like a, a couch and it's really big and heavy yeah i have one of those things and it's really nice i like it um that's the bike that i was trying to sell when i told that story if you haven't listened you should go back to episodes and listen to a story called the scammer a podcast called the scammer um anyway uh so i pass i come i'm coming up closer and closer to this guy and eventually i'm right next to him and i'm not traveling super quickly so we have a moment where we lock eyes he's he looks to his right i look i'm passing him on his right um And I look over my left shoulder and he looks over his right shoulder and we lock eyes and he screams. He screams at me. He goes, ah, but like, no, actually it wasn't like that. It was like proper, like, ah, like fear, a fear scream. And, and the dog, the dog jumped because his owner screamed. And like, I was just like, I like didn't really know what to do. So I just kept cycling. But like, why? Like what, what? I didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. Like nothing happened. There were cyclists going past. Maybe he just really, really, really hates eye contact. Maybe that guy really doesn't like eye contact. So much so that he screams whenever it happens. But I don't know. I've just been thinking about that. It made, it made me like, I don't know. Like what, what do you, like, are you, am I supposed to think about that ever again? Or am I just like, do I just forget it and like pretend that it never happened? Um, Cause like I looked back and the guy I don't know. The guy looked like he looked okay. He was kind of walking a bit more slowly, um, but he didn't look like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that situation. Anyway, that's my story. Um, so now I, yeah, I hope you liked it. Ha ha ha. That's not all that the podcast's about, by the way, there's going to be a whole lot of stuff. Um, but first of all, before I kind of move on, I would like to take a moment to thank certain people. So, um, I would like to thank Muhammad, um, who reached out and sent me an email, um, and spoke in great detail and at great length about his experience of being the child of migrant parents, of Iranian migrant parents in, in Melbourne, um, and having a very similar kind of experience of growing up in a predominantly white world. Um, we had a long email exchange, um, and it will continue the email exchange. So thanks a lot, Mohammed. That um, that that meant a lot to me. Uh, you opening up like that. Um, and also thank you, Mohammed, for sponsoring uh, the podcast. You you run our patron, and that means that um, I'm able to kind of keep keep making the podcast. Because um, I guess yeah, I need your help. Um, I'd also like to thank one of my oldest, probably my oldest family friend, uh, Ilya. Um, he also has sponsored the podcast. So. Thank you. Um, and Maeva, who I actually haven't met, but we also have had um, a really lengthy email exchange um, that has been really fruitful and rewarding for me. So, um, yeah, again, I encourage you all to reach out to me um, and to the creatives who kind of uh, help you, help you think about things and help you engage with things. Um, because it's nice to be told that you know, things are helping and, um, how, 
Um, I'd also like to thank my mom, because mom, I wouldn't be here without you. But she also <laughs> sponsored the podcast, which I thought was pretty funny, because I guess she sponsored my whole fucking life. Um, but yeah, uh, and Ashwin, who yeah generously donated money through PayPal, so thank you very much, Ashwin and Sarah, who also um, is sponsoring through Patreon. Um, so those are all the sponsors that I would like to thank. Um, and I'd also like to thank some friends and um, people who have kind of contacted me over the past uh, week or so. I hope to kind of do this with every episode. Um, so Leanne, Miller, Lily, Lucy, and Dee. So thank you for kind of sharing your insight into things. I, I really appreciate it. Um, so yeah, if you'd like to support the podcast, um, and yeah, I vow, I vow, like I vow that I I don't know if there's like a kind of stronger, um, thing that I can say, like I will, I will never have an ad on this podcast ever, ever, ever. Like there will, there will never be like, you will never hear me advertising like Squarespace or like rocket mortgage or whatever they fucking plug on this American life. And I love this American life. I love Ira Glass. Ira, if you're listening, I love you. Um, but I don't love rocket mortgage. I don't want to fucking buy a house. I don't want a mortgage. I don't care. Quicken loans, all that bullshit. Fuck that. No, there will be no ads on this podcast. And if there ever is an ad, you can you can replay this to me on repeat for the rest of my life. And I'll 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 have to suffer through it. So um that's my promise to you. But to keep that as it is, I guess I need your support. So you can support the podcast in two ways. I guess it's pretty clear now through PayPal and through Patreon. Um, and you can go on www.alex.co slash contribute. Um, and there you'll find links and reasons why. Like, I make all the music, I do all the editing, I buy all the equipment, I coordinate all of this stuff. So it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. And if it's rewarding for you, have a think about um, supporting it somehow. Um Okay, cool. So that's all of the boring stuff out of the way. Um, and now, oh yeah, this episode um, on being. Oh, on being. What does that mean? Philosophy. What is philosophy? I realized that this mic is so sensitive that I can like do ASMR. Like, like you can, I have the mic, I, I have headphones on and I can hear like, I can hear my tongue touch the roof of my mouth and stuff. Like, that's fucked up. That's fucked up. Like, I'm not even speaking. I don't even need to speak. And it can hear the projection of my essence, you know? So, thanks for being a good microphone. Yeah, I should really thank my microphone. <laughs> what the fuck? Um, anyway, um, I bet you saw the, the artwork for this uh, episode. And yeah, it's fucking sick, hey? Um, and it's by a Melbourne artist who is a friend of mine and is a friend of a lot of people who are my friends and she's called Coco. Um, and Coco is an artist from Melbourne. (laughs) I just said the same thing twice. Um, but you should check her out, her Instagram. She's tagged in the Instagram photo. Her Instagram is fucking Coco. So F-K-N-C-O-C-O. So thanks Coco. Thank you a lot. Um, thank you very much. Thank you a lot. Thanks a lot. That's how you say it. Thanks a lot. Um, I think the art's really beautiful. And Coco actually made the art after having listened to the episode and then, um, kind of, cause I sent it 
to her before I released it, obviously, and she responded to the episode through her art. So whatever you see is a projection of my voice onto the page through Coco's brain. Um, yeah. Okay, so this episode on being, what is being, what is the philosophy of being, what am I talking about? Well, um, the purpose of the episode is to introduce us listeners, me, into the world of being. Um, So what is it to be? What does it mean to be? Um, Is being something that only I experience? Is it something that you experience and I don't? Is it something that all of us experience? Is it kind of the totality of all of our experiences? Um, So how am I... How am I going to do that? How how am I going to look at the question of being? How am I going to speak about it? Well, what I thought would be helpful was would be to kind of um, provide you with the, uh, I guess, the theory or the thoughts or the opinions of three philosophers, three famous philosophers. Um, and now before you attack me, uh, I will um, add a caveat here. And I will say that I'm aware that I've chosen three old dead white men. Um, the three philosophers that I'm going to be talking about are Heidegger, uh, a 20th century German existentialist philosopher, uh, Sartre, a, also a 20th century French existentialist philosopher, um, and Nietzsche, who's a 19th century German. I, I don't know what you call him, maybe an existentialist philosopher. There's even doubts as to whether, like, you know, people don't actually like calling him a philosopher. So I guess I, I, I think as a philosopher, whatever. Um, so those are the three people that I'm going to be talking about. Um, all three of them have problematic histories and I don't have time to talk about them in this episode. Um, I, the purpose of this episode is to look at the question of being, um, their opinions are definitely shaped by their histories, um, and I would encourage you, if you, I would encourage you to look at their histories and um, to ask a question about how much you think their their political affiliations or that kind of stuff um, influences their philosophy, or whether their philosophy is independent of it. Um, but I think their philosophy is very helpful. Um, at least the bits that I'm talking about, I think they're very helpful. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I. I would also, personally, I feel a bit uncomfortable using these three old white philosophers, um, men, male philosophers, um, as someone who is a mixed race, person of color, um, I, I wanted to, I wanted to diversify, um, the kind of philosophy that I talk about. And that's something that I will do going forwards. Um, but, uh, I guess... At the moment, the three main existentialist philosophers who I have been taught the most, who I've studied the most rigorously are these three people. And so that's why I have, I'm speaking about them because I am, I am most comfortable talking about them. Um, the University of Melbourne, King's College, London, um, those are the three big existentialist philosophers that they kind of prioritize in their teaching, in their curriculum. So yeah, that's, that's me kind of, um, yeah, so that that's the caveat that I wanted to add. Um, anyway, uh, let's move on to their philosophy. So I'm going to split this uh, episode into three parts. Um, I'm going to look at purpose, 
then I'm going to look at value, and then I'm going to look at ethics. Um, and it's not going to be super, these aren't going to be three super clear categories, but I think that just for me to be able to kind of speak about this, um, I needed to split them. I couldn't just talk about it as one big thing because I don't know, it's hard. It's hard to kind of talk about this kind of stuff as it is. Like it's so damn abstract, but, um, hopefully this way, um, I'll be able to kind of approach the question of being through three different angles. So first of all, let's just ask what is being, um, is it being conscious? Um, I kind of, I was talking about this before. Is it being conscious? Is it being me? Is me what I experience? Is that being, um, is what you experience your relationship with being? Is it something different? Um, is it, uh, is it kind of a shared, is it, is your being kind of activated when you're with other people? Um, is it being around other people that, yeah, that, that is important for the question of being. Um, is my being different to yours? Uh, am I unique? Um, is, yeah, is my, is my experience of things unique? Um, can, can you experience things the way that I can? Um, these are all questions of being. Um, uh, and, and yeah, these are all things that I don't, like I can, I can try and, and I will try and investigate, but they're just such profound and um, challenging questions that it's worth thinking about it yourself. Um, because I have my suspicions that being is subjective. Um, and, uh, and we get, we get, we get closer to our true essence, to what it actually is for us to be when we are present in the moment and when we experience phenomena and stimulus stimuli um, as it presents itself to us in the very moment. So as we meet with things. Anyway, um, uh, that's just kind of an, uh, an overview of some questions of being. Um, so I guess the first topic that I said I'd talk about was purpose. And these three philosophers that I've chosen, they come under the branch of existentialism. And I guess existentialism is the branch of philosophy which deals with questions of existence um, and whether existence can be put, can be kind of surrounded by, can be surrounded by certain parameters, um, can, whether it can be demarcated such that it exists within a particular space. So, or, or in more clear terms, whether there are any rules for being, whether existence can be codified, whether there can be like a book, like a book of, a book of life, um, some people will say that that the Bible or the Quran or the Torah um, or religious scripture is is um yeah is where they derive their meaning from. Other people will say that it's the stars, you know, all of those cunning astrologists um, out there. <laughs> cunning? <laughs> um, no, astrology is fine. Uh, and yeah, okay. So, what do the philosophers have to say about? being so and about about purpose so Sartre is the first philosopher I'm going to talk about um so he was writing uh I guess I'm most familiar with um when I think about him I think about him writing around about the time of the Algerian independence which was in the early 60s 1963 um 
So he was writing at around about that time. One of his main claims, and this is, I guess, maybe his most famous quote, is that existence precedes essence. Um, And I had heard this years ago before I started studying philosophy, and I really didn't, like, it didn't speak to me. And it's not, it doesn't really speak to me too much more now. And you might ask, dude, why are you talking about it then? But there is, there is something here which is kind of, I think it beautifully summarizes the entirety of existentialist philosophy in, in these three philosophers, in Heidegger, Nietzsche, and Sartre. And that is that, so the quote again, just to repeat, existence precedes essence. It's essentially saying that being, what it is for us to be comes before what it is that people or ourselves might actually think that we are. So any us existing as as an entity, as something, us being as something should and must always be recognized as coming before any kind of value or... Um, yeah, I guess any kind of value that is placed on us. So any caveats that are added to us. So like, uh, we are at our core, a conscious being. And after that, we are something. We are um, citizens of a certain country. We are people who like certain food. We have certain preferences. But if you scrap all of that away, you're not left with nothing. What you're left with is what will always be there, and that is being, the question of being. Um, so I guess that that is that is the I think that is the most important or one of the most important claims of existentialist philosophy. Existence precedes essence. Um, and I guess you can you can extend that claim, existence precedes essence, into a a kind of uh, a deeper analysis of of what human behavior how human behavior should be investigated. And I guess what what he's saying, Sartre, is that the most important kind of realization for us as conscious human beings is that we are individuals that... And and remember that... that, Okay, wait, I'll, I'll finish my sentence. That we are individuals and that we are conscious and... We have free will, and all of this kind of comes together in in the shape of in the shape of a something that we have to realize, which is that we are responsible for our behavior. Um, and us being responsible for for our behavior, um, and and the idea of an individual. This is a very Western idea. And these are Western philosophers. Um, they are coming from Western Europe. Um, they, the idea of the individual is a very Western concept. Like, um, I was talking with my friend Grant. Um, I interviewed him. You should listen to it. It's a really beautiful interview, but Grant lived in China for a while. And, um, Grant told me that, you know, he felt as though, people around him in China had a much stronger sense of togetherness than how he felt um, we were socialized in in Melbourne, for example. Because in Melbourne, the priority is on the individual, um, in, on the individual being responsible for the individual's behavior and actions. That's what this claim, existence precedes essence, is saying. Um, but I just wanted to acknowledge that 
there are other different interpretations of what it means to be. Um, it looks like, from what Grant's saying, there is the idea in Eastern philosophy um, that uh, the it's not the responsibility might not be as tightly associated with the behavior of the individual, but rather on the behavior of a group, on the behavior of a community, on the ideology which binds the community together. Um, anyway, let's return to the claim. Existence precedes essence. So, um, there, there is the conscious, I keep referring to the conscious individual, the human being. Um, and for Sartre, the human being is, is unique. Um, and, and it's unique for, for a number of reasons. Um, it's unique because it is aware of itself. It is aware that it in itself, uh, is something which exists. Um, it has preferences. It might not be aware that it has preferences, but it is aware that it can, it can sit down and look at its arms and legs and whatever, whatever things that it has whatever physical manifestations of itself and realize that it is a living thing. But you can also do that. You don't have to look at parts of your body. You can close your eyes. And, you know, Descartes famously said, I think, therefore I am. Um, and I guess that that's kind of um, appealing to the same idea that, like, there is something about being, about saying that I am, which is associated with my conscious experience of things. Um, and there are a number of, there are a number of things that kind of unite here at the same time, um, in, in the claim that there is something unique about human beings and the themes, I guess, without, without going into incredible detail, are free will, um, which is the claim that, uh, we have, a certain amount of mastery over our decision making. Um, what does that mean? That means that so Sartre, for example, has a an extremely liberal conception of free will. So liberal that he believes that he would, if he was standing in front of me right now, he would say to me, um, "Alex, you handsome devil, um, if you go back, <laughs> if you go back in time." to the time, the point at which you started that sentence. That you, so the sentence that I'm saying now, if you went back in time and started it again, you could start it, you could phrase it differently. You could say different things. You could make a different point. So essentially what that, what that claim is saying is that there is nothing about my mental states or brain states as, as they are, which is which will all, which must always produce the same outcome. So like if, if I go back in time, five seconds, I can choose to start the sentence differently. And it doesn't matter what kind of stimulus I've received or how I'm feeling or what I'm thinking. But at that moment, at every moment, I have a choice to go somewhere new and somewhere different. And I'm never bound by circumstance or anything like that. So it's this kind of really radical idea of, um, human freedom and, and free will. Um, and that is very important to the question of being because, um, con, I guess the competing, the main competing ideology, uh, which rubs against, um, runs against 
uh, rubs against that, uh, runs against free will is um, determinism. And I guess you can imagine what determinism is. It's the opposite of free will. So that everything is determined. Um, there is no free will. We can't, we don't, maybe there's an illusion of free will. And uh, Sam Harris is one person who um, challenges the idea of free will and kind of believes that, um, you know, we it might be more of an illusion that than we actually think it is. Um, but yeah, I guess um, in terms of being, uh, being would be radically, radically changed if there was ever any finality as to whether humans did truly possess free will um, or whether everything was predetermined, whether every decision was kind of um, set in stone, written somewhere, oh, I, as if it had been written somewhere. Um, because if you're, I guess, one kind of, one thing that is confusing for me is that if we go back in time five seconds to the time that I started, oh, I hit the microphone again, to the time I started the sentence, um, my brain had a particular configuration and that configuration is the result of my entire life history, all my experiences, all the times I've hit my head on things and lost brain cells, whatever, but also all of the stimulus that I'm receiving in this very moment, um, the light in front of me, the microphone in front of my face, the feeling of the couch on my legs, um, the feeling of the t-shirt, um, that I'm wearing, the feeling of my socks, whatever, like the list goes on. There is so much stimulus and it's all coming at me and it's all kind of configuring my brain in a certain way. But I, I think that the reason why I kind of, I'm curious as to how accurate Sartre's, his, um, his radical free will claim is the reason why I, I I have issues with it is because how if my brain is configured in some way, if we go back in time five seconds, my brain is going to be configured the exact same way. And and I I just don't see how. Well, I guess like maybe there's some kind of metaphysical, maybe like semi. I don't like using the word supernatural, but I guess there's something else going on with our conscious experience, which can mean that. Like maybe free will can't be measured in terms of physics. Maybe it's separate from physics. But at the moment, like, I think I have a, I have quite a hard time accepting the claim that like, if we go back in time five seconds and my brain has a particular state that it can just keep changing the way it produces outcomes. Because like, I think that at least, yeah, brain state A will lead to outcome B. And if you keep returning to brain state A, you will always produce outcome B. I, I don't see how um, you can return to brain state A and produce outcome C. Um, but may, maybe you disagree. And this is something like um, it's very important to the question of being because our conscious experience of things is our, I guess it, it is all that we are. Um, like, Without consciousness, without experiencing anything, um, I wonder. I wonder whether we we could even think about the question of being and what it is to be. Um, but yeah. Anyway, 
I'll return to Sartre just to make one final, just to kind of investigate one final claim that he makes. And this is just a, a useful distinction for going forwards. When you think about things in the world, um, there, Sartre thinks that there are two different types of things. There are things that he calls them being in itself. So there are things that are being in itself. And these being in itself things are things that don't possess consciousness. So like a, like a pencil. So I have a pencil and I look at the pencil and the pencil just, it is what it is. It, it's not in a state of flux. It's conscious experience of the world isn't changing. Um, it just is. You can you can sharpen the pencil, whatever. You can change its shape, but that doesn't change that it's a pencil. It's a pencil. That that that's all that it is. We're not. Obviously, we are not like the pencil. If you sharpen my finger, like my conscious experience of the world is going to be totally different because like the functionality of my finger is going to be reduced. I'm probably going to be really angry at you for having sharpened my finger. Um, so much is going to change. And that's why we aren't like the pencil. I guess that's a really crude um, comparison of these two things. So the pencil, Sartre calls being in itself. And a conscious being like me and like you and like humans um, is called being for itself. Um, and this, I'm just going to hint at something because this is going to be a very important question for, for my generation and for younger generations. Um, I guess less important for, you know, older generations because (laughs) yeah, like they're not going to be around for this, but as artificial intelligence progresses and develops, we need to think about whether they will whether they are conscious. Um, Because artificial intelligence is a lot more sophisticated than a pencil. Um, I don't think that that artificial intelligence is conscious yet, that any of it is conscious yet. But there's this kind of, uh, this word that is continually referenced in discussions of um, uh, artificial intelligence. And the word is, called the word is singularity and the singularity refers to the point at which um artificial intelligence will overtake humans in terms of their ability to navigate the world so they'll be more intelligent they'll be faster they will be whatever whatever we are it will be better um if that let's say if that point comes is is that thing conscious is it, is it like me? Um, should it, should we, should we ever think about robots and things the way we think about humans? Should we apply the same kind of ethical codes? Should we do all of these things? Should we care about robots? Um, if there's a self-driving car, do we think about the self-driving car? If it gets in, if the car is crashed, do we mourn for the car as if we've lost a conscious being? Um, yeah, th- these are questions to think about. Okay, um, I'm now going to move on to the second philosopher, Martin Heidegger. My analyses of the next two philosophers, Nietzsche and Heidegger, are going to be um, less 
there'll be less kind of spiraling questions. And I'm go- I'm just going to kind of briefly outline th- how how they interpret the question of being. So one of Heidegger's most interesting themes is um, the revolves around the question of authenticity and inauthenticity. Um, and I guess I, I should define authenticity um, for Heidegger. Actually, I'll define inauthenticity because that's much easier to define. For Heidegger, inauthentic behavior is behavior that is is like for, okay. So, inauthentic human behavior is behavior that happens without a kind of interrogation or analysis of why it's happening. So, for example, um, if you believe a certain if you believe something because you've been told that that's the way the world is. So let's say if someone tells me that um, that water is wet because it starts with the word W um, and I believe that, that's problematic for Heidegger because I am not actually reaching a conclusion myself in terms of my... I'm not... There is no interaction between my being and the water. I am just receiving information about it and not critically um, challenging it and analyzing it and seeing whether it fits with like my essence, um, whether it fits with my being, whether it like, yeah, I'm just inserting it into me. And obviously that example that I gave isn't true. Like there is. There are reasons why water is wet. Um, And yeah, like that's obviously a very like a silly example, but like, you know, we can apply this to more kind of concerning things like some people's political leanings. Um, They might just inherit from their family members. Um, Their parents tell them that this is the way the world is, that they have to feel a certain way about this particular ethnic group, that they have to believe that these people are responsible for these problems in the world. Um, and I guess one one useful insight that we can take from Heidegger's conception of inauthenticity is that this behavior kind of undermines what it is to be because it removes it removes the agency or the the free will or the um, the capacity to engage with to translate external stimuli into internal kind of thoughts and processes and stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so we are obviously born into a world where a lot of things we kind of have to accept. Like, um, uh, well, we don't have to, but like, you know, it, it helps. Like gravity and um, I guess, like you know, laws of physics. And um, there are some things that we don't question, like, um, maybe a lot of the time we don't question what it is to be, you know, we just wake up in the morning and, and we go to work or whatever. And we don't question what, what it is to go to work. And like, we don't question the structures that are in place, you know, capitalism, money oriented society, having to work to be able to afford to live. Um, and asking those questions is a step towards authenticity. It's a kind of a shedding of the skin that we are kind of uh, a shedding of the, I won't say skin, I'll say um, the film that we are 
we are kind of coated with when we're born. And Heidegger has a term for this. He calls it um, uh, um, we're fallen. We are fallen into a particular uh, facticity. And the facticity, what that means is that, you know, we kind of we 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 grow up in particular circumstances and those circumstances obviously have a huge influence on who we are and what our preferences are but the step towards authenticity is kind of recognizing that there are things that are influencing our decision making and having a think about whether whether those things actually resonate with our being um yeah okay so that's that's enough of heidegger um now I'll move on to Nietzsche, who's the final philosopher that I'll consider. Um, now Nietzsche, Nietzsche has this theme, uh, this idea of the will to power. And this is a very controversial theme, um, very controversial idea, because it's extremely ableist. Um, it, it doesn't account... For, it, it. A lot of it is described in purely physical terms. So he talks about strength and he talks about weakness. Um, he talks about like kind of fun, like healthy mental functioning and then like unhealthy mental functioning. And like, you know, for someone like me who is like, who has had a long history of mental illness, um, there are like parts of what Nietzsche says that, that puts me in a category of someone who is weak. Um, and that's like that, that's problematic um that's something that we need to think about when we read nietzsche but if we use if we use the binary the kind of two categories that nietzsche make has created weak and strong i think you i think there's one way of reading them that allows us to see them in a similar way to to heidegger's inauthentic and authentic ways of being so um Nietzsche thinks that there is, there is a, um, there is something about being a strong person. Um, and you can, again, like I would maybe read some Nietzsche or something. I'm um, trying to come up with your own interpretation of this, but how I've read it is that I think what he's saying is that, um, there is something about being a strong, a strong person, um, that, that is extremely important. Um, and that allows us to, to move from a state of inauthenticity to authenticity. And that, that avenue needs to be kind of protected and needs to be nourished and encouraged. So there needs to be an encouragement for people to kind of question how they themselves, in themselves, how their conscious experience of the world relates to the structures around them that are non-conscious, um, so, like, is capitalism conscious? Is money conscious? These things, like, they're, they're very sophisticated and complex, but I don't know. I don't think they have a brain. I don't think they kind of have the same free will as we do. Maybe, like, I don't know, cryptocurrency or something, which is fucking... Who knows what goes on with cryptocurrency? Maybe something like that um, is, like, moving closer to... But I guess that's the question of, like, artificial intelligence you know, and like, at what point we are supposed to, um, like whether, whether it can ever move close to having a similar 
position as like human beings in terms of being recognized as a conscious um, autonomous agent. Anyway, I think what we need to take from Nietzsche and this idea of the will to power is that um, the expression of one's of one's being uh, is is a very important thing, um, and it allows us, if we're talking in Heideggerian terms, it allows us to move from a position of being inauthentic to a position of being authentic, um, and that's important because. It's important for nature because there is an inherent drive, or so he thinks, for us to kind of project our being onto the world and create the world in our own image. And that doesn't mean just like walking around and, and you know, doing whatever you want and being a to- like being a hedonist or whatever and, you know, causing harm to people. But um, it means it means doing it in a way that facilitates the same kind of behavior in others so it's kind of a a careful and respectful projecting of the questions that are that are rising up from your being out into the world in such a way that you're not stifling the capacity of others to do that so i don't know maybe like yeah maybe 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 i should move on to the next section which is probably which is really relevant here um which is I guess I'm actually going to, con- I'm going to conflate these two things, ethics and value. So those were the, the next headings that I was going to discuss. Um, so ethics and value. Um, I think one, one, uh, I'll begin by asking a number of questions. So um, value, what is value? What is valuable? Um, is, is my conscious experience of the world valuable? Does, does, is yours? Um, do I, should I protect your capacity to consciously engage with the world? Should you protect mine? Should we protect that of others? Of Should we protect everyone's ability to consciously interact with the world? Um, and what, why, why is consciousness valuable at all? Um, well, let me ask you, have a, have a think about this. I mean, I ask you like 15 questions, but, um, you know, I guess... You're not, yeah, whatever. Let me ask you this because I think this will give you an answer as to whether or not you think your conscious experience is valuable. Um, so there's this thought problem um, in philosophy, which kind of goes a little something like this. Um, so you wake up one day and there's a person in your room and you're like, fuck, what are you doing here? And they're like, oh, hello, good morning. I hope you had a nice sleep. I have a machine here. And if you plug yourself into the machine, you will experience all the pleasure and happiness or the highest levels of pleasure and happiness that you've ever experienced all the time, forever, at every single moment. Um, and and once you plug yourself in, you won't be able to, um, you, won't, you won't know that you've plugged yourself in. So the question you need to ask yourself is, would you plug yourself into this machine and experience constant happiness and, and pleasure? Um, uh, but, but that would, it would mean that, um, you know, you lose, sorry, sorry. And the other thing is that once you're in this machine, you're not doing anything. Like you're, you don't have a, you're not walking around and stuff. You don't have friendships and, and you don't, 
you don't walk around in parks and you don't read or whatever you like doing. You don't have any of those things because you're just in this machine and I don't know, maybe it's stimulating the parts of your brain that produce like, um, that produce feelings of happiness and euphoria and that kind of stuff. Um, I imagine that a lot of you wouldn't plug yourself into this machine because you think there is something intrinsically valuable about having friendships, about your experience to walk around and touch things and and learn from things and learn from others and have family and have friends and whatever. The list goes on and on and on. But I guess may, maybe you want to be plugged into the machine and just experience pleasure all the time. That Like, that's cool. Um, if, you, if you actually do think that, send me a message and tell me why. Because... Um, uh, yeah, I'd be really interested to hear because I, I wouldn't want to be plugged into the machine. I think there is something. Um, I, I think that you you completely depart from what it is to be when you're plugged into a machine like that. You lose you lose the own you lose the only thing that allows anything about human about being a human about being. You lose the only thing about being that allows anything to be special. Um, you lose consciousness. So yeah, I, I guess, are there things that are valuable? Um, yes, it seems like there are. How do we determine what's valuable? And I guess this is like moving into the realm of ethics. Um, so there are a number of big, I guess, like, uh, ethical schools of thought, which inform the nature of being. So utilitarianism, which is one of the big ones, um, utilitarians believe that there is something, uh, intrinsic about human flourishing and human happiness and pleasure or whatever you want to call it, pleasure, happiness, satisfaction, validation, gratification. I don't know, whatever term you want to give it some kind of positive feeling. They think that utilitarians think that there is something about being which is in close relationship with pleasure or satisfaction or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so for the utilitarian, the decision, the decisions that you make in the world, the exercising of your free will, the way in which you direct your being should manifest in a way which maximizes pleasure for the greatest number. Um, that is like, that is a very brief summary of utilitarian thought. So maybe you, maybe you're a utilitarian. Um, Famous utilitarians include um, Peter Singer. His, I keep referencing this guy. Um, he he believes that um, that you can't you can't justify causing harm to sentient beings to animals um, because he thinks that on some level they have a conscious experience um, of of harm. They can consciously experience harm, um, and. And so, therefore, you can't justify meat eating. And so, that's why he's a vegan. You can't justify the harming of an animal because, as a utilitarian, he believes that what you need to do is maximize pleasure for the greatest the greatest number. Um, and, you know, this is me plugging veganism, but, like, you can get the same... You can get the same... Um, uh, from, from what I've read, you can get the same kind of nutrition and nourishment and whatever from plant-based diets. Um, and maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe you're going to reply to me and be like, dude, like fucking 
like avocado has feelings um but fuck you you know so do so do cows um yeah okay so and then and then another another um utilitarian okay so yeah another uh, sorry another ethical school of thought is deontology um and i'm not as well versed in deontology but the deontologist doesn't uh doesn't kind of measure its doesn't evaluate its decision making in terms of the consequences that it produces it has something um so maybe it will believe that human freedom is the thing that needs to be pursued um and then decisions will be based on that it won't be based on it might it, the co- it, coincidentally it might produce the same outcome as utilitarianism um but it's interpreted as something that is distinct from utilitarianism because it doesn't have at its core the motivation to maximize happiness, pleasure, satisfaction, whatever, for the greatest number. And so what is the relationship of ethics to being? Well, I suppose that as a conscious... So the first part of this was looking at existentialism. So and in, in existentialism, we touched on a number of themes, one of which was the kind of selfness, the being in being for itself Sartre's um you know term for a conscious human agent which has roles and responsibilities and must be held accountable for its behavior because you know it is it has its own free it possesses free will um with free there is something that we need to do with free will and that's where ethics comes into this because ethics allows us to think about how we should make how we should use our free will to kind of translate our being have our being manifest in the world um and value the relationship of value is kind of i guess it's it's not super clear what the difference between you know ethics and value is because you might value things and your ethics your code of ethics might be based on that but i guess it seems like in terms of the question of being being itself is inherently valuable or will be inherently valuable for many of us um and so yeah uh that is that's it that i'm gonna i'm gonna stop talking that that is on being the philosophy of being what what did you think uh that's a lot that's that's really really a lot my brain is like yeah my brain aches really aches um yeah i'm sitting i'm slouching on this couch with the microphone between my legs um my legs are like wrapped around it and i have my housemate's lamp um and i i kind of just forgot that all of this stuff was here because i was thinking about yeah yeah anyway i kind of yeah (laughs) what what did you think (laughs) tell me tell me what you think send me a message you know on instagram DM me. I'll be waiting by my phone with it in my hands. Um, or, you know, oh, tell, I'll tell you what you need to do. You should go on iTunes and leave me a review if you like the show. Because, unfortunately, that's the only way other people are going to engage with it. Is if, you know, there is a kind of reputation or whatever that the show, that the podcast has for being something that helps you. So, um, if it helps you, let me know. 
and let me know personally or whatever itunes whatever i don't care i don't care actually i keep saying i don't care but evidently i care a lot because i'm asking you about this i fucking care about the podcast okay it's the most important creative output that i have ever had and that sounds like i'm being sarcastic but i'm just tired and i'm not being sarcastic it actually is so maybe you feel like you're being guilt tripped and fucking good be guilt tripped leave a review um whatever uh um what else can i say uh oh yeah um next week next sunday uh another episode is going to be coming out um i will post on instagram soon and let you know what that episode is going to be about because it's either going to be an interview that i did last week with someone i'm not going to tell you who it is or it's going to be another one of these on being things um or it's going to be a short story that i wrote so yeah, I'm going to wrap it up there. Um, again, thank you at fucking Coco for the artwork. I think it's beautiful. Um, thank you for listening if you've made it this far. Uh, and um, enjoy your life and enjoy being. Ha ha ha. Bye.